Well, we're in a series that we're calling For Everyone. And this morning we come to the end of chapter seven. And we're going to kind of call this message The War Within. You ever feel that there's kind of a war going on inside of you? Well, we're going to talk about that war as Paul talks about it. Get ready by turning to Romans 7. And while you're turning there, let me kind of show you what's going on in this section of Romans. What Paul's doing is he's giving us a series of contrasts. He's contrasting before and after, before and after. And he mentions that he's giving illustrations or examples In chapter 6, here's how he said it in chapter 6. I am using an example from everyday life. In verse 2 of chapter 7, he says, for example, what's Paul doing? He's doing what all preachers do. He's giving illustrations to help people understand the principle or the idea that he's talking about. Because sometimes it's hard for us to have the principle sink into our minds. So, They look for illustrations, and Paul grasps a few of these illustrations to help us be able to get traction in our minds so that we won't just understand it, but we'll be able to be changed by it. And he uses these series of illustrations as before and after pictures. So he says things like this. We have a before and an after representative. Adam used to be your representative, but now Jesus is your representative. There used to be a before and an after result. Living with Adam as your representative, sin was the result, but now in the after picture, righteousness can be the result. We have a transition or a translation of master. We used to be mastered, living in slavery to sin. Now we've been freed and we can live as servants of Jesus. And last week, Jason helped helped us understand, we've got a different spouse We used to be married under the authority of the law, but now we're married under the authority of Jesus, and that changes everything. So in this section, Paul gives us example after example, illustration after illustration to help us understand before and after. And we need to be living the after picture, not the before picture, and that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Because we're creatures of habit. I know we're creatures of habit because most of you sit in the same seat every week, right? And so you just kind of naturally gravitate to the same section. In fact, no joke, right before I came up, I got a text message on my, I can show it to you on my phone afterward, you want to see it. Charles, someone is in my seat. Would it be wrong if I ask him to move? Uh, And I said, well, it all depends on who's going to give the most offering. (laughs) Right? We're creatures, but it isn't just in where we sit. I'd be willing to bet When you get dressed in the morning, you put the same sock on first before you put the other sock. You know, if it's sock weather, right? You take the same route to work every day. You order the same few items from the menu at the restaurant. We're creatures of habit. Now, there's nothing wrong with being creatures of habit. That's a neutral term. In fact, I would submit God built us as creatures of habit. It's part of being human that we're creatures of habit. What makes it good or bad is the habit that you practice. There are some bad habits and there are some good habits. We call the good habits the things we do. They're the patterns, the themes we live by. The bad things we call them habits and we're addicts to those. But we're habitual creatures. That's neutral. But what have you latched onto that you repeatedly do? So here's the problem. We all have a before 
And in Christ, we now have an after. But since we're creatures of habit, old habits die hard. And those ruts run deep in our minds and our hearts. And if left to ourselves without some effort and thought, we just naturally gravitate to doing it the way we've always done it, which means we live the before picture rather than the after picture. So that's kind of where we are. In chapter 7, verse 7, Paul shifts gears from talking about illustrations to talking about this battle. Now, all of chapter 7 is about the law, right? The law that Moses gave, the whole chapter. And so, in a sense, what Jason helped us understand was we used to be married under the authority of the law, but now we're freed from that. Now we're married under the authority of Jesus, But what else is going on with the law? How should the law function in the life of a Christ follower? Romans 7 is kind of maybe the most extensive section in the Bible that answers that question. So here we go. I'm going to attempt to read it. One commentator this week, and he's absolutely right, said, there's no human being alive that can read Romans 7 without getting tongue-tied and twisted as he reads. You can try it at the same time. You think this is easy? You can try it at the same time. Read it out loud and see how many times you mess up. You'll understand in a minute. Follow along, Romans 7, beginning in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me Every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, But I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? 
Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. You ever live that though? I mean, every time I read that, I think, boy, that's kind of my, how does Paul know what's going on inside of me? Well, it's not just my message. It's kind of Paul's story. It's your story. It's the story of humanity. We'll see that as we go by. Well, what Paul does two times in the passage I read, he asks a question. So is the law evil? Is the law? And then he answers with a real short answer. Certainly not. No, it's not. He gives the ADD answer first, right? And then he answers quickly. And then he gives the more extensive answer after that. So we're going to kind of work with the more extensive answers. But the first thing you have to understand when he says, is the law good or is the law bad? That's the question. Is the law good or is the law bad? Well, in order to answer a question, you have to know its purpose. You know, we often ask, was it good, bad? Hey, how did the party go? Without understanding, something is only good or bad depending on its purpose. For example, is a butter knife good? Sure it is. It's good to spread Philadelphia cream cheese on my crackers. It's good to spread peanut butter on my bread. But a butter knife is not good to gut a deer. Sorry, it's hunting season. A butter knife is not good to screw screws into the wall. Is a butter knife good? It all depends on what purpose you're referring to. Is a, is a cell phone good? Sure it is if it's charged. It's good to make calls. You know, there's some people in the room right now that do not have smartphones. I know that because I've texted some people this past week and they don't have smartphones, so I don't get any answer, right? I don't get anything. I think they're ignoring me, but they don't have a smartphone. Is a cell, for, uh, a cell phone's great. A cell phone is great. A smartphone's great to keep you awake during a boring sermon, right? You kind of check email, send texts, do Facebook, look at the app. You can do lots of important stuff. Is a cell phone good to send emails and texts? Absolutely. Cell phone's great. Is a cell phone really good for, you know, building family community around the dinner table? No, 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 it's not real good for that, right? We often experience that. Everybody disconnects from each other and they're all on their cell phones doing something independent. See, it all depends on the purpose. We've got Christmas Eve services coming. Are we going to have a good Christmas Eve service? Well, it all depends on the purpose. Is the purpose of our Christmas Eve services for longtime church attenders to have their warm, fuzzy, sentimental fires built when they think about it. That's not, that's not going to be good for that. Is Christmas Eve service a good thing, a great thing to help your friends and neighbors and coworkers understand the message of Jesus that commences at Christmas and to help us celebrate and enjoy that together? Absolutely, it's good. You see, you have to know the purpose in order to know if it's good or bad. Now, what does that have to do with the law? Well, the law of God is really, really good for the purposes in which it was designed and intended. So in order to answer the question, we need to talk about what are the purposes. And Paul kind of hints at a bunch of them here. Here's what he says. What shall we say? Is the law sinful? Here's the ADD answer. No. Nevertheless, then he gives a long answer. So let me spin out for you a few purposes of the law. Number one, Paul tells us, that the law that Moses give, gives, God reveals it to Moses, Moses reveals it, you can read it in the Old Testament, the law of God was designed, its purpose is to define sin. It defines it. Now tomorrow night, many of you are going to watch the Eagles game. I know Ben is. You want to watch the game tomorrow night? No, Ben's going to be there, by the way. Um, 
You ever notice when you're watching a football game this afternoon or tomorrow, the field has a bunch of stripes on it. The stripes define the playing field. The stripes define inbounds, out-of-bounds, touchdown. The goalposts define extra point field goal. That's kind of like the law. The law defines what's in inbounds and out-of-bounds. Well, since the law defines sin, and if you live life inbounds, you're in. If you live out of bounds, you are breaking the law. You're living outside the law. Um, why does God stripe the field? Does he do that to make our lives miserable? You know, sometimes we think, God, it would be a whole lot better if you didn't put any lines on the field. I just do whatever I want in life. No, no, no. God stripes the field and uses the law to define sin because he loves us. Let me explain it like this. God's the creator. Paul talked about that in chapter one, right? God created everything. Therefore, God knows how everything works. He also designed and built us. He knows what, what context will allow us to flourish. He knows where we will find abundance. So he stripes the field of life to say, guys, this is how you'll flourish. Live inside the lines. Live inside the lines and you'll experience fulfillment and abundance. He stripes the field for our benefit, not to make us miserable, but to give us abundance. But the law not only defines sin, the law reveals sin. Notice Paul says in those verses, I, I wouldn't have known what sin was apart from the law. The law not only stripes the field, the law reveals to us when we cross the line. The law reveals to us when we step out of bounds. In some ways, the law is like an alarm system. Some of you have alarm systems in your home. And if you're not careful, you trip it on yourself, right? The police come or you have to call. Oh, no, no, I didn't mean it. Um, well, the law is kind of like an alarm system. It doesn't just stripe the field. It tells you when you've stepped over. Now, again, we can discombobulate the uh, alarm system by living out of bounds so much we no longer hear the warnings we no longer hear the whistles and buzzers and so we can sear our conscience the bible says but it reveals sin but not just that it doesn't just tell us when we cross the line the law reveals the depth of sin too you may say well, where the heck do you get that well look at the verse which commandment which one of the ten commandments does Paul mention? Do you know the number? It's number 10. You shall not covet. See that? That's actually the 10th commandment. Why do you think Paul mentioned number 10? Did he forget the first nine? You know, some people think, well, shouldn't you have mentioned like the first one? Have no other gods. Second one, don't have any idols. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't say, why didn't he mention any of them? I'll tell you why. Because he's really smart and he knows what he's doing. Every one of the first nine commandments can be interpreted and was interpreted externally, behaviorally. You got to remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees, they were students of the law. They understood it. And it was really easy for them to kind of treat the law as externals. And so if, if you add them up, well, don't tell lies. You know, sleep in the right bed. Don't kill people. 
Honor your father and mother by doing these things. Don't make idols and bow down to, well, you're good, 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 if your body never does those things. Question, what item can you tick off your to-do list when it comes to commandment number 10? Do not covet. Huh. Covet's on the inside, isn't it? You don't covet on the outside. Now, coveting will lead to external stuff, but coveting is inside. So what Paul's saying is, you know what? When I considered the law as being behavioral primarily, when I considered it to be external only, I, was a lot, I thought I was doing really good. But when the light went on and I realized that the law is internal, not just external, I was undone, I died. Interesting, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll discover that what Jesus does in that middle section, he takes some of the commands right out of the top 10. He takes some of the 10, but he looks at them internally producing externals. So he says things like this. You've heard it said you shouldn't murder. Don't kill people. And many of you think you tick that item off because you've never killed and nobody's at your feet. Huh, ever been angry at anybody? Ever call anybody names? What's he say? You've broken the commandment if you've called people names, if you're angry with them, because the same root that produces anger and name-calling produces murder. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. But there are lots of people think that they cover that command if they've slept in the right bed. But then Jesus said, but if you've ever committed adultery in your heart, you're guilty. What's he saying? There's an internal part to every one of the commands. What do we want to do as human beings? We want to make them superficial. We want to make them external. We want to make them all behavioral. And Paul said, as long as I played that game, I was okay. But boy, then God began to convince me and his spirit worked in me. And I began to see there's an internal root to every one of the external fruit. I was undone. The law not just doesn't just define, it reveals sin in us, the depth of sin in us. And so you may think you got the behaviors right. How are you doing on that inside stuff? Boy, we're all guilty, right? How about, how about a third thing the law does? The law provokes sin. Isn't that right? I mean, the law kind of just gets you to, entices you to sin, doesn't it? Well, here's what we're going to do, a little bit of an assignment. I'm going to quote my favorite theologian, and I'm going to ask you to finish the sentence. We'll see how good you are. In a piece called Growing Up, he writes this, I hid with the crowd and lost in the crowd. When they said, sit down, I stood up. Some of you understand the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Springsteen in Growing Up, what's he say? When they said, sit down, I stood up. Now, here's what's going on behind that. Here's a guy who was perfectly content sitting down. He's happy. He's relaxing. He's taking a load off. He's enjoying himself until somebody said, now you stay seated. Then he had this uncanny urge to have to stand up. You've never had that experience, right? Yeah, see, the, the law provokes that. We don't even need biblical law. Being told you shouldn't and can't do something kind of makes you want to do it. You ever driving, minding your own business, driving along, and you're going 54 miles an hour because you think the speed limit's 35. So you're going 54. 
But all of a sudden, as you go and you see a 55 mile an hour speed limit sign, and now you no longer are content going 54. Now you have to go 64 because you know the state troopers won't stop you unless you're going more than 10 miles over the speed limit, right? Until you saw the 55 sign, you were happy going 54, but now you have to go 64. You see, the law kind of provokes that stuff, right? I, I have a new grandson, 18 months old. It's amazing. You don't have to teach this stuff, right? He's happy, content, playing with his stuff until you tell him not to touch something. Then he, his toys are no longer any good. No. He has to go and he's looking back. He knows, right? Looking back as he's reaching for it, just like us. Now, when Paul's doing this, he's actually saying, all I'm doing is recapitulating Adam's story. If you remember back to the beginning of the Bible, God says, no, he's defining He's revealing, and in a sense, the law is provoking. Isn't that the tree that Adam hungered for? Isn't that Israel's story? So the story of Adam is recapitulated in Paul. The story of humanity is recapitulated in Paul. The story of Israel getting the Ten Commandments recapitulated in Paul. And that same story is lived out by each one of us. The law stripes the field. The law reveals that perverted impulse inside of us. And in that perversion and twisted heart that we've got in rebellion against God, the law provokes us and entices us to live out of bounds outside of where God calls us to live to our own detriment. Isn't that right? It's amazing. Paul knows exactly what he's talking about. Well, the, Paul, the, the law also condemns sin. It condemns him. He says, well, look, if you step out of bounds, that plays no good. If you're kicking it, then you go through the goalpost, that's no good. There are consequences, but the consequences that he lists in this letter, the wages of sin is death. Paul says there are, there are consequences. Is it the law that actually brought the consequences? No, your sinful heart, that sinful impulse in you, caused you to live outside of bounds in rebellion against God. That's what's causing it, but the law condemns it, and the law gives the writ. So if you were to interview a prisoner in prison this afternoon and say, why are you in that stupid law? It wasn't the law. It was his perverted, twisted desire to get something outside, out of the bounds that actually has him there. The law condemns. So we've got four purposes for the law right here that he's hinting at. The law defines sin. The law reveals sin. The law provokes sin. And the law condemns sin. But one thing the law was never, ever designed to do. To earn you acceptance with God, to get your sins forgiven, and to bring about the transformation that only the Holy Spirit can bring in you. The law was never meant to do that. If we depend on the law to do what it was never designed and it's powerless to do, we're looking to the law to do what it can't do. The law can give you guidance, but the law can't bring about change. That's what Paul's saying about the, don't look to the law for something the law was never designed to do. Well, that really brings us to the next section, and that's all about Paul's situation. Now, I have to tell you that this section may have never bothered you. You may not get all hot and lathered up about it, but theologians, Christians, exegetes, New Testament scholars have argued about this passage, no lie, for centuries. 
They get red-faced, they scream and yell, they call each other names. And the question is, well, what's Paul's situation when he writes? Here's the question. Is Paul writing this stuff about the battle, right? Is he writing about the struggle inside of him? Is he writing as a Christian? So he's talking about the battle, he's being the struggle and the war within as a Christian? Or is he writing looking back on his experience before he became a Christian? That's the question, you see it? And these guys get all feisty about this. I mean, they scream and yell. No, 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 Paul's like, no, 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 he wasn't a non-Christian, come right, a Christian, come right there. Well, here, here's the gist of it in a nutshell. Paul says, sin is alive in, we've got the verse, sin is alive in me. The law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Now look at this, sold as a slave to sin. Well, if you look back in chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says that he's been set free from the law. He's no longer a slave of the law. In verse 22, he says, but now that you've been set free from sin, you become slaves. How in the world can Paul be a slave of sin if in the chapter before he talked about he's no longer a slave to sin? Therefore, Paul can't be a Christian when he's writing this. Well, the other side is, yeah, but all the verbs he uses are present tense. Up until verse 14, every verb was past tense. Then starting in 14, when he talks about this battle, they're all present tense. I do not. I am. It is. Present tense. All the other stuff was future tense or past tense. How's that working? Well, here it is in a nutshell. Um, you don't have to come to some big conclusion, and I'm not sure which side you're going to be on. Um, and depending on the day, I can be on one side or the other side. But here's, here's what I think. I think Paul's probably writing as a Christian. And here's why I think that primarily. I've never met a non-Christian, non-Christ follower who could write what Paul wrote. Paul says this, I love and delight in the law of God. How many of your non-Christian friends love and delight in the law of God? None that I know. And they kind of get ticked off at God and start blaming. And say, oh, well, that can't be right. God doesn't. And here's another one. Um, not just do they uh, not really love and delight in the law of God, they also don't have the humble opinion of themselves. Like, wretched man that I am. I can't do anything. I'm sold as a slave. Most non-Christians, they don't think like that. And again, you may be here this morning, you're not a Christ follower. We're glad that you're here. I'm just kind of laying out what Paul's saying. Here's what Paul's basically saying, I think. Most non-Christians that I know are self-righteous and self-confident. Isn't that right? They live by their own law. They're not delighting in God's law. Nobody should tell me how to live, not even something in the Bible. I will make up my own rules for life. You shouldn't tell me what to do. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. That's not what Paul says here. And the second thing is confidence. You know, if you were to ask, you know, a typical prayer, go to the mall this afternoon. Oh, please don't. But, but if, and you were to just interview, you know, we're not sure. You know, do you believe in God, not believe in God? But if there is a God, when you check out, you think you're going north or south. What do you think? My guess is the vast majority of people you interview, uh, if there is a God, I'm going north. You know, my neighbors are a heck of a lot worse than I am. You know, I know Billy, he's going south. Me, I, I'm going north. I try to do good. I'm do they're self-confident in what they're doing and kind of self-righteous because they want to write. The That's not what Paul says here. 
So Paul says, I'm a wretch. I'm terrible. You got to kind of be in touch with what God's law says. In fact, the longer we're Christians, the more sensitized we are to our own sin, aren't we? And the more sensitized we are to our own sin, we realize this is a grace deal. If this is a performance deal, I'm screwed big time. So I would think that that's Paul's situation, but I'm not going to die on that hill. Well, what's the battle that Paul mentions? Um, I know what I should do, but I don't do it. The things I do, I don't want to do. Uh, you know, when I read that, I think Paul must have been a golfer. You know, every golfer I know, they know what they should do. I know where I should hit the ball. It just doesn't go there, right? So, I mean, you, you could read the end of chapter 7, every golf round that people have ever played. The thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, that's what I do. That's why I have to keep buying golf balls, right? Um, but here's what Paul's saying. There's a battle. Let me describe the battle this way. Paul has conflicting desires, conflicting impulses, two different motivations. So we'll use Calvary terminology. On the one hand, Paul says, I really desire to continue what Jesus started. I really do. I'm going to put my time, my energy, my resources into advancing what Jesus is about. I want to put my time and energy, resources, talent, gifts into building Jesus' kingdom. I want to be part of that. But the other desire is, I really want to continue what I started. I really want to build my little feast. I want to build my kingdom. I want to accumulate my stuff and do it my way. Aren't those the two impulses you have? Now, on Sunday morning, we show up. It's easy to say, oh, I want to continue what Jesus started. How about tomorrow morning? Are you continue what he started then, or you continue what you started then? That, that's the battle. That's the struggle. And just like I said earlier, Paul recapitulates Adam's battle, Israel's battle, and our battle. That's it. That's, we have two competing impulses, two competing priorities, two competing agendas. Now, we know based on who Jesus is and what he's done, which one will win. But day to day, there's vacillation, right? Day to day. Well, I'm glad the chapter doesn't end there. The chapter ends with Paul pointing to victory. He doesn't spell it out clearly here. That's going to be chapter 8. And uh, we're going to break for Christmas before we do 8. But uh, you'll kind of get the picture of where he's going. Where is victory? It's all in asking the right question. See, we often ask the wrong question. Paul asks the right first question. Let me show you. Here's what he says. What a wretched man, women, what a wretched woman I am. Here's the right question. Who? Not what? The wrong first question is what? What question do we usually ask? What? Wrong question. Here's how we ask the wrong question. Well, how do, I, need to, I need victory. I need, what should I do? Wrong question. What new book do I need to read? Wrong question. What new seminar do I have to attend? What new program do I need? What small group should I join? What program should I? What new discipline must I establish? What should I do? Wrong question. The right question is not what, it's who. Paul gets the question right. He's pointing us in the right direction. Look at the third word in the question. Who will rescue? Not who will help me, who will kick me in the butt, 
Who will encourage me? Who'll pat me on a bit? No, no, no. Who will rescue me? You only need to be rescued if there's no hope apart from someone else outside of you coming to help you. Paul asks the right first question. Who will rescue me? So what question do you ask? I mean, you already admitted you kind of lived that battle, right? You have two impulses, right? Your kind of habits die hard, and so habitually we're used to doing this, and we're kind of already, but not yet. We're kind of living life in the in-between, and do you normally ask what or who? I'd be willing to bet if you're like me, you ask what more? What should you pray about? What should you read in the Bible? What new program? What people should you talk? Wrong first question. It's not what, it's who and who will rescue. You have to admit you're hopeless and helpless and you look to who? Well, he tells us who. Thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ. That is where victory is found. It's not in a what you do. It's in a who and that who is Jesus. Now in chapter 8, What Paul does is say, now the spirit of Jesus comes not just outside, but inside of you, and the spirit gives you what you need to live the after rather than the before. So Paul mentions this battle and this struggle because chapter 7 is about the law, and he's saying the law is powerless. The law is weak to bring transformation. If you like theological words, the law can't sanctify. Only Jesus sanctifies. That's what he's saying. It's not a what, it's a who. All right, but that kind of ends what I wanted to say, but we're not done. Because I want to give you homework. You say, Charles, what do you mean? You give us homework, it's Christmas. Well, here's your Christmas gift. I'm going to give you a little assignment. It won't take long, but it's going to take some time every day, just a little bit. I know you're busy. I know you're busy with family. I know you're busy planning. I know you're busy at work on parties. I know you have lots and lots to do. And if we keep asking you to volunteer and do so, I know, I know. But I can also say, in all honesty, there is absolutely nothing you can do this week that's more important than the homework I'm going to give you. Nothing. Okay, so here it is. We've looked at seven chapters in the book of Romans. I'm going to ask you to read one chapter a day. If you start today, you'll finish next Saturday. If you start tomorrow, you'll finish next Sunday morning. One chapter a day. And while you're reading, I want you to answer three questions. Simple, you've heard me say these questions before. Here, here are the questions you need to read when you need to ask when you're reading the Bible. First question: What does this chapter tell me and teach me about God? So when you're reading Romans 1, what's it? You can write it down, put it in your phone, or just tuck it away in your head. What does this chapter tell me and teach me about God? Secondly, what does the chapter tell me, teach me about me? You know, you're going to see yourself every chapter, right? So you learn some things about God, you learn some things about yourself. And thirdly, what does the chapter teach me and tell me about Jesus? How does this chapter push me, point me to Jesus? One chapter a day, it won't take long. Yeah, we're talking about five, ten minutes. One chapter a day. What's it teach and tell about God? Teach and tell about you. Teach and tell, how does it point you to Jesus? And I know because it's God's word, not my word. I know that if we would do that, all of us would honestly do that. This would be 
may be the most significant week of our life. God's going to speak. You're going to respond. That's what we do. Now, next week, we're going to have an opportunity for you to respond. It won't be anything weird. I don't like weird stuff either. There's going to be an opportunity for you to respond. But you're only going to be able to respond if you've done your homework, all right? So you have my permission to bug each other during the week. Bug your spouse, your kids, your parents, your friends, your neighbor. Hey, did you read your chapter today? What are you thinking? Um, and when we gather together next week for the response, it won't just be a response for a week. It may be part of God's transforming process that goes on forever. So we've looked at seven chapters, but a whole lot more important, quite honestly, more importantly than you listening to me, is you listening to God when you read the chapters and you're kind of fighting it out with him chapter by chapter. And you come next week ready to respond. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks for this letter. We thank you for inspiring and moving, influencing Paul to write this letter. And there's a sense in which he's not just writing to the Romans, he's writing to us. And he's writing about you and he's writing about him and he's writing about us and he's writing about Jesus and he's pushing us to the spirit. And Lord, I pray that you'd work through our homework. Nothing magical about words on a page, but some amazing, miraculous things can happen when you take those words and don't just work them in our heads, but you work them in our hearts. And so Lord, would you work through this homework assignment? And would you make us different so that we really can continue what Jesus started rather than continue as we often live, building what we started and what we think is most important. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.